Well, good morning. My name is Todd Richmond. I have the pleasure of serving here as the Director of Missions. And uh, once a year, we take a Sunday morning to talk about missions, to learn from the Bible. What is God calling us to? How does he want us to do this? Uh, What is missions all about? And I actually want to stop for a minute and pray. Um, I feel inadequate this morning in several different ways, one of which I feel particularly um, common this morning. Common. I guess it's okay to be common, isn't it? Opening God's word. Uh, other, the other one is I, I physically am not all I would like to be this morning. Let me ask God to uh, work in spite of those shortcomings this morning. God, it is an awesome thing to come before you, to open your word, to preach your word, to hear your word in the, the body of your people. God, I pray your spirit would be here this morning. I pray that you would give me a mouth that would speak your truth, that what I say would be true. It would be consistent with your heart. It would be the message we need to hear. I pray that you would give each of us ears to hear your truth this morning, to apply it to our hearts, open our hearts up to receive all that you would have for us. And God, uh, physically, I pray that you would give me strength this morning. And that would not, your message would not be hindered by any of us. God, we love you and we expect you to do great things this morning. Amen. <clears throat> so every year I try to think about what is it that we need to hear. I pray, God, what do we need to hear? What do we need to think about? What do we need to work through? What do we need to be reminded of? And those of you who have been around for a few years know that every year, I base my sermon on the Great Commission, Matthew 28, because it's the Great Commission. But you know what? This year, I'm going to take a little bit different, a little bit different poke at missions, okay? A little bit different perspective. So this year, we're not going to read uh, about Jesus' declaration that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. We're not going to read his command to us to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. We're not even going to read about his promise that he'll be with us even to the end of the age. However, I'm not abandoning the Great Commission. Right? Any way we slice this missions thing, the Great Commission is going to be at the core. However, this morning I want us to take a different look. I want us to look at the Apostle Paul. All right? Anybody, any any reasonable person, and I don't care so much about the unreasonable people, would say Paul was a great missionary, probably the greatest missionary, the most effective missionary. And you know, as we, as we talk about missions, as we send out missionaries, as I go around the world talking with missionaries, everybody wants to be like Paul, right? We want to be like Paul, and we all say we're like Paul. But we need to actually study Paul, What did Paul say? What did Paul do? Perhaps we can learn some things from him and become more effective in our ministry and in our missions. Turn with me this morning. Turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read a little bit about what Paul has to say about himself and his work. And after I'm finished reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, don't close it, okay? Because I'm going to be near there again in in just a couple minutes. 1 Corinthians 3, I'm going to read verses 9 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. Because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. 
If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. Paul is saying there is a right way and there is a wrong way to do this work, to do this building. And Paul calls himself a master builder. And that's, that sounds a little bit arrogant, maybe. But he attributes that to God, right? He says, according to the grace that was given me, he understands that his wisdom, his discernment, how he built, how he went about his work came by the grace of God. And the work that he does, he wants it to last. He wants it to stand the test of time, the test of trials, the judgment. So I want us to learn this morning from this master builder. If Paul's the master builder, and we can see, we know a lot about Paul. We have the book of Acts. We see what he did. We have his epistles. We see what he said to the churches. We have some of his sermons. Right? We know a lot about the apostle Paul. Let's learn from him. I recently read a book called The Conviction to Lead by Al Mohler. The Conviction to Lead. I'd recommend it to you. I think it's a great leadership book. It's not a book about the nuts and bolts of managing people or anything. The point of the book, The Conviction to Lead, is that great leaders have deep convictions. And they operate from those convictions. They have things that they believe so strongly that it affects all that they do. It affects the direction they lead other people. It affects all that they say. And I really appreciate, even in this church, the conviction of the leaders here. You know, Pastor Brad stands up here week after week, right? The sovereignty of God. Have you heard him say that before? Yeah. Grace, the gospel. Those are are deep convictions that we have here as a church. And by the way, if you don't know, Pastor Brad has a couple other horses that he'll ride uh, behind the scenes too that the staff is very well aware of. we, uh, We appreciate... People leading with conviction, right? We appreciate when someone has a strong belief, especially if it's a biblically grounded belief, and all that they do is driven by that. I want us to learn what were some convictions that the Apostle Paul had that drove him so we can learn what was behind what he did and learn from what he did and learn what we should do, what we should be believing, what we should take away from that, okay? So convictions of a master builder. First one I see in Paul is he had a priority of proclaiming Christ. Paul had a priority of proclaiming Christ. Well, that was a lot of P's, wasn't it? That wasn't even intentional. You still in 1 Corinthians 3? Go back one chapter to 1 Corinthians 2. And I'm going to read from verses 1 and 2. Now this kind of thing that Paul says here, he says multiple places. This is just one of them. 1 Corinthians 2, let me read verses 1 and 2. And I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, let's understand this in light of the rest of Scripture. It doesn't mean that Paul had a five-second gospel presentation. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus, and that's all he ever said, right? Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. It means that all he taught when he was speaking, it always brought it back to Christ and him crucified. He was building on that foundation, which was Christ. Right? When he would preach, it would come back to their need for Christ. When he was encouraging other people, When he wrote his letters, right, his epistles, as you read Paul's epistles, it's almost awkward to read he refers to Christ so many times, right? About once per verse, often in the first part of his epistles, he's referring to Christ. He does not want us to forget Jesus and Jesus' work on the cross. We also see that in what he did. When we read the book of Acts, we see him going and proclaiming Christ. That's what he did. He says in Acts 17, 1 through 3, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom... Okay, as we read, we see this is really Paul's custom. This is what he did over and over. According to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ 
had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Right? He would explain what happened on the cross and why the Messiah had to die and rise again. And then he would say, that person is Jesus. That's the Jesus that I talk about. Okay, so wherever Paul went, he is proclaiming, he is verbally proclaiming Christ. Now, Paul did other things as well. As we read through Scripture, we see Paul doing other things. We see Paul collecting money uh, for the famine, for famine relief. We see Paul doing some miracles. We see Paul making some tents. And I don't want to downplay or minimize the other things that Paul did. But as you read through the book of Acts and you read through his epistles, what he wrote, you'll see just undeniably Paul was about proclaiming Christ. That's the horse he was riding. Now, we often around here say that the gospel solves our greatest need. I completely agree. The gospel solves our greatest need. We are separated from God by our sin. God is holy. We are sinful. The gospel solves our greatest need. I want to push that a little bit further. I think the gospel solves our only eternal need. Our only eternal need. I like to think in terms of 100 years. 100 years is a good number because in 100 years, we're all dead, right? Maybe with the, the occasional oddball exception, in 100 years, you can be talking to anybody, in 100 years, they're going to be dead. And those things that we so worry about right now, I mean, the things that are on our list, the things that, even the things that we're praying about and the things that uh, keep us up at night, in 100 years, only one thing will matter. And that is whether or not we knew Jesus Christ. Whether or not we are covered by his blood, justified by him. Whether or not we are adopted into the family of God. Our only eternal need and our greatest need is the gospel. It is Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross. And for us to repent and believe in the gospel. And you know, when you were around Paul you were hearing about Jesus. When you were around Paul, you were hearing about Jesus, right? If Paul is in a synagogue, you're hearing about Jesus. If Paul is in a secular auditorium, like like the Areopagus, you are hearing about Jesus. When Paul is on a ship, or even being shipwrecked, you're hearing about Jesus. When he is in jail, or when you are chained to him, you are hearing about Jesus. And that's, that's got to poke us a little bit this morning. That's got to cause us to ask the question. This is a question I'm a little bit scared to ask because I don't like the answer for myself, actually. When people are around you and people are around me, are they hearing about Jesus? Would they come away and say, wow, that man and that woman talks about Jesus, is proclaiming Jesus a lot. We, we're excited about a great many things. I am as well. Um, are we as excited about Jesus and what he's done and who he is as Paul was? Is Jesus that important to us? Is that what people get when they're around us? You know, we have to embrace it ourselves first. We have to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. We have to believe what his death and resurrection purchased for us we have to believe the promises that we have in him the joy that we have in him we got to embrace it ourselves first and i would i would ask us each to think do we love jesus the way he deserves to be loved and then it must be at the forefront of our ministry and our missions work our work is about proclaiming jesus about making him known to people who don't know him yet I want to give us both an encouragement and a challenge around this this morning. Okay, I want to challenge us, but I want us to give us some encouragement around this as well. I want us to think for a minute about the history and the footprint of Grace Fellowship Church. The history and the footprint of Grace Fellowship Church. Okay, about 20 years ago, it was just a handful of families in a living room. Okay? Uh, godly people, some of you 
still here. Okay? But the footprint was fairly small, right? A handful of families in the living room. The footprint's fairly small. Here we are 20 years later, by the grace of God, him working in many different ways. Now we run about 1,600 people. Okay? About 1,600 people. And we're spread all over the place, right? We got Boone County. We're in Kenton County. We're in Campbell. Pendleton, Gallatin, Grant Counties in Kentucky. One family way out in Foster. You know who you are. We got some people across the river. Hamilton County, Claremont County, Warren County. Got people over in Indiana. Okay, the footprint has gotten a lot bigger. We've commissioned five families from this church to go to the nations to proclaim Christ. Okay, we have sent people from here. So from this initial little group of a few families in a living room look at what God has done as he has brought us as he has saved people as he has sent us out to our workplaces to our neighbors to our schools to proclaim Christ our current gospel witness is actually pretty broad and pretty deep we should be encouraged by that God has done some great things and we are all beneficiaries of that of that grace of God But dream with me for a minute. Dream with me for a minute of the next 20 years. If God can do that in 20 years, what could God do in the next 20 years if we all became proclaimers of Christ? If we owned this same conviction that the Apostle Paul had, and wherever we went, wherever we worked, wherever we're at school, wherever our neighbors are, we were proclaimers of the gospel of Christ. I think locally, you know, in this tri-state area, you know, I don't know how big God will make us. Maybe it's 1,600, maybe it's 1,000, maybe it's 2,000. If all of us were gospel proclaimers, people in our area would actually have to go out of their way to not hear about Jesus. Even in this post-Christian society, we like to start calling it, we could have such a witness that people would have to go out of their way to not hear about Jesus. Think about internationally. I don't know if in 20 years our church can completely cover the globe all by itself with a gospel witness. But in five areas or six or ten areas of the globe, people groups, we could have a significant gospel witness with believers carrying on the work. This is what God can do through us. But will we have the conviction that Paul had of proclaiming Christ? The priority of proclaiming Christ, what God might do. Second conviction that I see from Paul is he had a priority of establishing and nurturing local churches. Establishing and nurturing local churches. It's striking, actually, as you read through the book of Acts, that wherever Paul went, he left behind a local church. That was important to him. You know, he's reading Acts 13 and 14. That's kind of his first missionary journey. Uh, we see him going. He's teaching. He's making disciples. He's in towns like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. And then Acts 14, at the end of that, he goes out. And at the end of that, it writes this in the book of Acts. And after they had preached the gospel to that city, that city being Derby, and he had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul went out, he went city to city preaching the gospel, and then he went back to those same cities and helped to establish churches, appointing elders, teaching them, encouraging them, Paul's second journey, second missionary journey, he went places like the Galatian region, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus. Now some of those places ought to ring a bell to us, right? We have books of the Bible that sound a lot like those because those epistles, those letters from Paul were written to those churches and they are written to encourage them, to teach them further doctrine, uh, to sometimes to rebuke them and correct them. So the epistles are the letters that Paul wrote to the churches 
for the most part, he had been to. He had not been to all of them. He also sent others to those churches. He sent a Titus or a Timothy to go to appoint elders and deacons to teach, to correct, to help establish those churches. Paul, it was important to Paul to establish and to continue to nurture local churches. And listen to this. He, he was a master church planter and he did it with next to nothing. Okay, Paul did it with next to nothing. Paul did it in a pagan, hostile society. He did it in the Roman Empire, right? Pagan, idol worship, uh, bad government, not favorable to Christianity. And then there's the Jews. Even the religious leaders of the day were not favorable to Paul and to Christianity in these fledgling churches. Paul did it without cars or airplanes or buses or boats. We have so much now, right? We got, we got cars. We can get places. When we travel, we talk about traveling for hours. You know, when Paul had to go from one place to another, he was talking about days or weeks. Here's one, and this one is almost unbelievable in our society today. Paul planted churches without Wi-Fi. Okay? That's a little funny, isn't it? A little funny. But tell me, when you walk into a place... Do you not expect to have Wi-Fi, expect it to be free, and expect it to be fast? Paul did it without Wi-Fi. I was just literally, I was literally on the other side of the world a few weeks ago. And uh, we, were, we were way out in the volcano coffee-growing region of the ends of the earth. I never lost cell phone signal. Can you believe that? That is crazy. I'm like, dude, I still got cell phone. I got three bars. Paul planted churches without Wi-Fi. Paul planted churches without electricity. Paul planted churches basically without books. I love to read. Um, I have, you know, a hundred or so books probably sitting on my shelves in there about different elements of church planting and all these things. Paul did not actually have this. Right? Remember, we just talked about those epistles, part of the New Testament. Paul was still writing as he was planting these churches. He did not have the entire canon of Scripture, the entire revelation of God yet. Yet the church flourished. The church flourished. And we have every advantage in resources and helps. Think about information that we have. Right? I can look up anything, and I can look it up now. Within seconds, I can find out information on just about anything I want to know. I can look up a commentary. I can just you know, pull up the, the Bible on my phone. I can pull up a biography. I can pull up an encyclopedia. I can pull up information instantly. Think of the money we have these days. Okay? We don't always feel super rich, but you know what? We are super stinking rich. We're in a rich nation, unlike anything before us, and even in our worst days. If, if you look at what we have, the resources we have, compared to what Paul and those early New Testament churches would have had, there's just no comparison. We are not hurting for money. Travel, as I already mentioned. Really, in, in 24, 36 hours... I can be anywhere in the world, almost any spot on this globe. In 48 hours, I could probably be in any spot on this globe right now. Think of the history that we have, the advantage of history. We can look back. You know, hindsight is 2020. We have 2,000 years of church history that we can learn from. We can learn from mistakes that were made. We can learn from heresies. We have the benefit of people who have wrestled before us and done well or done poorly to learn from Paul and the New Testament church. They were, they were doing it for the first time. And then we have sheer numbers. You know, when we're talking about Paul and his little band and the apostles and this, this little group of Christians that started out, they went out and upset the world. We have, we have millions and millions of Christians now. I mean, even in this church, like we said, 1,600 or so Christians 
if, if, if those numbers were mobilized, if Paul and his little band could accomplish so much, what could the Holy Spirit do through millions of Christians in the world today? We need to make sure, though, that we don't allow our advantages to become our hurdles. Sometimes when we have something, now we need more of that, or we can't move on without that. You know, we, we run into that as we go and work in, in poorer nations. Um, somebody in a different society might be the richest person in that society, and they feel like they are rich until we get there and we show them what they don't have. And all of a sudden now they feel they're poor. Oh, I don't have a car. I didn't even know cars existed. Now I know there's cars. I don't have a car. Now I feel poor. We let our advantages sometimes become our hurdles. And we can't move on if we don't have all these things in place. We also need to remember the value of the local church. I think, I think people in this church understand uh, how wonderful it is to be in the body of Christ. Uh, to be around others. To be encouraged. All the one another's of scripture. To be corrected even and taught by others in the church. To be able to serve with one another. The local church is God's plan. Okay, God's plan is to have the church of Christ built in this world. It is the organization that he has sanctioned. So Paul had a conviction of establishing and nurturing local churches. We need to have that as well. A third conviction of Paul, that sacrifice is normal and expected. For Paul, when he would think of sacrifice, he didn't think of something unusual or exceptional. When Paul thought of sacrifice, he thought, yeah, that's life. That's normal life. It's expected. In Acts 9, 15 and 16, okay, so we got the road to Damascus. Paul, bright light, talks to Jesus. He's going into Damascus. And the Lord talks to Ananias, who was a disciple in Damascus. And he says to, to Ananias, Go, for he, talking about Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How would you like that to be the first thing that God said about you? I'm going to show you how much you will suffer for my name's sake. Paul knew from the start that his life was going to be about sacrifice. Somewhat later in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, Paul says this, And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul knows wherever he goes, he's going to suffer. He's going to be called on to sacrifice. And that was normal. And we see that play out in his life. As we read through the book of Acts, we see that play out. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is recounting some of his suffering. He says he was imprisoned. He was beaten times without number. Five times he received from the Jews the 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. And by the way, we read when he was stoned, they left him for dead. They thought they stoned him to death. Three times he was shipwrecked. He went with hunger, thirst. He went without food. He was in cold and exposure. This was life. For Paul. For Paul, sacrifice was normal. Now, sacrifice can be something that you intentionally give up, or it could be that you put yourself in a place where you are likely to suffer. For Paul, he had both of those things. For Paul, sacrifice was normal and it was worth it. It was normal and it was worth it. For Paul, it was worth it because it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. He wrote in Romans 8, 18. For Paul, sacrifice was normal and it was worth it because it is producing for us an eternal weight of glory 
far beyond all comparison. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying, yeah, it's sacrifice, but in comparison to what I gain, it's nothing. It's not even worthy to be compared. Paul limited himself. Paul um, didn't do certain things so that he could become all things to all people so that he may by all means save some. Paul would give up things, give up rights that were his, so that by all means he might save some, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 22. For Paul, sacrifice was normal and it was worth it. All right, that begs us to stop for a second and get a reality check on our sort of middle-class American Christian version of sacrifice. Again, meddling a little bit here, a little bit afraid of what I see in my own heart here. And I'll admit, I'm about to stereotype a little bit, okay? I'm going to stereotype a little bit. So I know that what I'm about to say is not true of every person in every situation. However, let this poke you a little bit. Let the Spirit poke your conscience a little bit. When we talk about sacrificing, when we talk about suffering, do we have the same thing in mind that Paul did when he talked about it? Folks, sacrifice by definition means we are losing something. And we are losing something dear to us. Sacrifice means losing something that is dear to you. Sacrificial giving means that we will not actually be able to buy something else that we really wanted. If we are sacrificially giving, there is something else that we want that we cannot buy because we sacrificially gave to something else. Sacrificing our time means that we will not be able to do something that we want to do. Sacrificing prestige or advancement means that we're not going to be as important as we want to be. Maybe it will mean that our kids will not be as successful as we dream that they might be. Sacrificing our comfort means that we will be uncomfortable. Our practical definition of sacrifice is often unrecognizable next to verses like, take up your cross and follow me. Or whoever will lose his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. You know, as I read through Scripture, there are verses that really bother me because I have trouble reconciling them with the sacrifice and the suffering that I see in my own life. It's my, my own life seems often so shallow compared to things that people in the Bible went through or what Jesus has called us to go through and give up. Our wealth and our comfort and our conveniences and our human flourishing have not actually helped us here. They've diluted us and they've distracted us. <clears throat> and in fact, that's, that's important as we go other places in the world, as we work with others. We need to be careful about bringing too much of those things that have become snares to us. As we bring uh, perhaps wealth or comfort or human flourishing to other peoples, the very things that have caused us to struggle, we just we need to be very careful. What's the answer here? I, I imagine all of us feel this a little bit like, yeah, I understand that my sacrificing, my view of sacrifice is not like Paul's. Uh, my view of sacrifice is more of a special case or, a, or an extreme, not part of daily life. How can we begin to turn this ship a little bit? I think like Paul, we need to fully buy into the, the economy of the kingdom. The economy of the kingdom. What do I mean by that? I mean that God says that certain things are valuable and other things are worthless. And that is very different than what the world tells us is valuable and is worthless. Will we buy in to God's economy fully like Paul did? Paul says this in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is saying all the things that used to be important to me, all the things that the world tells me is important, I've come to find out those are worthless. And I count them as rubbish and I've lost them. And I don't mind losing them because I've gained Christ. Christ is true gold. So his sacrifice becomes to not feel so much like a sacrifice because what's he doing? He's trading rubbish for gold. We need to get the economy of the kingdom as well. We need to believe what God says is valuable, what is eternal, what is true riches. What would it look like? What would it look like as a body if we had this economy in mind? What would it look like if we began to live with sacrifice as part of normal life? If we were not so self-protecting? If sacrifice was the norm? I can almost see it. I can almost see it. The, The unleashing of God's power through us into this world. If we were not so caught up in all the trinkets of this world but in what was important to God. Christ, his kingdom, eternal things. Think of the resources and the lives that would be released like a wave into this world for the kingdom. So Paul also had a conviction that sacrifice was normal and expected. A fourth conviction I see in Paul is the need for perseverance. The need for perseverance. Paul said in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul pressed on. We already talked a little bit. Paul's normal ministry looked like this. He'd come into a city. He preached the gospel. Some people believed. They were often Gentiles. Some people did not believe. They were often Jews. Not always. After a while, they would run him out of town. Or they would beat him. Or they would stone him. Or they would put him in prison. And what would Paul do with that? He would get up, he would go to the next city, and he would do the same thing over and over again, knowing that suffering awaited for him there for him as well. Paul would get up up and do it again, over and over, and Paul persevered. Now, most of us are Americans. Most of us are Americans. And there's something about Americans, and that is we don't like to lose. This is actually, as you go around the world, that's... That's kind of a big deal for Americans. Americans don't like to lose. When is the last American-made movie you saw where the American lost? I mean, did you see Rocky IV? The American always wins in the end. We don't like to lose. We don't like to have to get back up again when we get knocked down. We live in an instant society. We've touched on this. We live in an instant society. Things come easy to us. And they come to us quick. And we can often forget about the perseverance that we read about in scriptures. The people of the Bible had to persevere. Often as we're reading, we're we're, we're missing out on the time frames. Because from this chapter to this chapter, it might be 40 years. We're missing out on the time frames. Think about Noah. You know, like a hundred years, he's waiting for the flood, building the ark. A hundred years. Think about Abraham. Think about Moses. Okay, Moses, right? 40 years, and then he has to go to the wilderness for 40 years, and then he goes to a different wilderness for 40 years, and then he dies. Okay, that's perseverance. Think about Joseph. We read the story of Joseph. Wow. Persevering as he is wronged. As he follows God, he is wronged over and over. He perseveres. Daniel in captivity and the people of Israel in captivity in Babylon decades often in scripture people are persevering for decades before they see god work sometimes centuries however we we have a thought we like 
results in hours or days or minutes or seconds, right? I can Google search something. I can get about 10 million results in like 1.5 seconds, right? And if it takes five seconds, that is painfully slow. That's, that's the society we live in right now, and we've picked that up. We expect instant results. We expect to win. We don't expect to get knocked down and have to get back up again. We also, we abhor the mundane. We don't like the mundane. We like the flashy. We don't like things that are repetitive. We like things that are new. Right? Go to the store. The same box of cereal, but it says new. Oh, I'm going to buy that. It's new. It works. Because we like things that are flashy. We like things that are new. Now, I learned a few years ago a golf phrase. And I want to put this golf phrase in perspective. Because I play golf about once every other year. Okay? So, if you want to learn helpful things about golf, don't ask me. You need to ask somebody else. I'm not good at golf. I hardly ever play. But there was a phrase that really stuck with me. And it stuck with me in certain areas of life. And that is, drive for show and putt for dough. Drive for show and putt for dough. And if you play golf, I think you know what that is. It's really cool to really smash a ball with the driver, right? 300 yards. And and if you're like me, you go to the drive range now and then, you get the bucket, and you get out the driver, and you are hitting it as hard as you can, and nine in a row, right? Do this thing over, slice over to the fence on the right, and one goes straight, and you're like, yeah. And it is awesome to see somebody crank a ball 300 yards. It's flashy. But in golf, the real money is made on the putting green when your putt goes in one putt less than the guy next to you. That's where the money is made. The money is not made in the flash. The money is made in, in the discipline and, and just the ordinary looking things of life. Now, we are not a flashy church. I don't know if you've picked up on that yet or not. Uh, I don't know if you know, recently we painted some walls that were not a shade of tan. So we're not, we're not really in that much danger of being an overly flashy church. But even our church, we, need, we, we can be distracted and deceived sometimes that the big, the big flashy things that we all see are what, are what the work's all about. Sunday morning is vitally important. The preaching of God's word, the hearing of God's word. Our lives are changed as we come together on Sunday morning. But much of the work of the kingdom takes place with all of us in the middle of the week in a way that nobody sees. It's the studying of God's word. It's praying. It's meeting with people and talking through and working through the scriptures with others. Our missions work is the same thing. There are flashy things about missions and then there's mundane things about missions. I mean, one kind of flashy thing is is short-term trips, right? I mean, I was just on a short-term trip. A couple weeks ago, I am on the other side of the world, okay? Twelve time zones from here. Um, and it's flashy. We're in the jungle. We're, we're in big cities. We're doing all this stuff. We're exploring things. Short-term trips are important. They make good pictures. They make good letters. But don't forget the day-in and day-out work of our missionaries around the world. The work is often done in the prayer closet. The work is often done in one-on-one, in evangelism, discipleship, encouraging others. Okay, the work that will last and will stand the test is often not flashy. We need to, pers- we need to persevere. We need to embrace as well the things that are mundane and repetitive. Now, we get to see in Paul's life some pretty flashy things. We see some great moments of Paul. But you know what a normal day, I think, looked like for Paul? Let me read a little bit from 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12. This is Paul talking about his time when he was with the Thessalonians. He says, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day... So as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you, 
as a father would his own children. Paul describes his work as that of, I'm like a mother to you. I'm like a father to you. Okay, moms and dads and kids, you understand that, okay, family vacations and stuff are pretty cool. That's where most of the pictures come from. But the work of parenting happens in the day in and day out, right? Getting out of bed, getting breakfast, getting kids to school, teaching, correcting, disciplining. The the real work of parenting is often in the repetitive and in the mundane. Paul understood that. We need to understand that as well. What can we learn from Paul here? I think we can learn faithfulness. I really like the word faithfulness. We can learn faithfulness in the slow soul work of evangelism and discipleship. It's not always flashy. It's rarely fast. But day in and day out faithfulness, perseverance for years and decades until we can see some lasting fruit and building in a way that will stand the test. Our own ministry and our own missions work needs to persevere. It needs to be patient. And by patient and persevering, I don't mean slow. I don't mean that we ought to purposefully go slow on things, but I mean that we need to be intentional and disciplined to continue on when things get hard and to not despise the the behind-the-scenes work that often happens. Okay, so what's my point here? What's my point? Why did we look at Paul? What are we going to do with what we learned this morning? There's really two, two main things I want us to take away this morning. One is what it means to us as a church. And the other is what does it mean to us individually. First, as a church, I want us to see why we do what we do as a church, both here and internationally in our missions work. Why do we do what we do? We have three G's here, right? One of our G's is going together with the gospel to the tri-state in the world, right? Gather, grow, and go. Going together with the gospel to the tri-state and world. Our work around the world and around the tri-state is heavy on proclaiming Christ. It's heavy on proclaiming the gospel. And there's many other things we can do. There are many other good things. There are many other things that we will do along the way. But we don't want to forget the priority of actually proclaiming Christ out loud to people who need to hear. Remember the eternal need that people have? We will meet people's temporal needs along the way. But our work is heavily focused on proclaiming Christ. Our work is heavily geared towards producing healthy, Bible-based local churches, particularly around the world. Okay, why have we sent... The Dostals to the Czech Republic. Why have we sent the Marksberries to Romania? Why have we sent the Alvidres family to Albania? Why have we sent our brother and sister to Southeast Asia? Why have we sent the Kurds on campus? Why are we exploring a new unengaged people group where there isn't even a witness of Christ yet? We're doing that so that we can proclaim the gospel and help to establish and nurture local churches. Local churches there who from the people that live there will carry on this work of evangelism and discipleship to their people group, to their nation. That's why we send people. That's why we have partners in Bible translation, partners in church planting, partners in prayer ministries, all geared towards people coming to know Christ, established in a church for the kingdom of God. It's why we do and will continue to do multi-site here in northern Kentucky. Okay? We talked about our footprint and the depth and the breadth of our gospel witness here in northern Kentucky and beyond. We want to go reach new neighborhoods where we can't reach where we're sitting right now. So we want to have multi-sites where we have parts of our body in different places. That's why we have small groups spread out all over so that people where they live, can teach the gospel, can encourage one another, can make disciples. Now I'm going to call our worship teams back up this morning as I wrap up this final point. And that is, 
considering what it means to us individually. What an impact could we have on this world if we each personally had these convictions that Paul had? I understand Paul was special. I understand he was an apostle. I don't think that just because we believe everything exactly the same as Paul, that we will necessarily have the impact that Paul had. But what if each of us had these priorities of proclaiming Christ day in and day out to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our kids, to our parents, to our relatives, to our neighbors? What if each of us had this love for the local church, for the value of the local church and all that God is doing through the local church? What if we lived as if sacrificing was the norm? Not the exception, not for some super Christian or for some super moment, but if we all lived sacrificially day in and day out? What if we were all patient and faithfully persevering through the things that God has called us to? I think that all of us living like that would open the floodgates. God could work through us individually and as a church, right? The church is just all of us together with Christ as our head. The resources, the power, the gospel witness that God could pour through us if we lived like that. We're going to wrap up by singing a song, I Will Follow You. I believe and I will follow you. This song is about believing what God says so strongly that we actually follow him through thick and thin. You know, if we don't have deep-rooted convictions, when going gets tough, we'll stop or we'll fall short or we'll go down some other path. We'll be blown about by the wind. We'll get distracted. We'll be off on tangents. So we're going to sing this song together to wrap up, to hopefully drive some of these truths into our heart. Let it reaffirm the truths of God to you this morning. Let it rekindle our love for Christ so that we might be a powerful people for God in this world.